In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa, in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing behind the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him, he struck the ram, shattering his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat became very great, but when he became powerful, the large horn was shattered. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. From one, from one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively towards the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly host, made some of the stars and some of the host fall to the earth and trampled them. It made itself great, even up to the prince of the host. It removed his, da it removed his daily sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Because of rebellion, a host, together with the daily sacrifice, will be given over. The horn will throw truth to the ground and will be successful in whatever it does. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? The daily sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the host to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Ulai. Gabriel, explain the visions to this man. So he approached where I was standing. When he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me, made me stand up and said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath, because it refers to the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media in Persia. 
The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the shattered horn represents four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, an insolent king, stilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause terrible destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will make himself great. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be shattered, not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you must seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. I, Daniel, was overcame and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went, around, went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. Steve. Thanks, Denise. My name is Paul. If I haven't met you, it's lovely to see you. Could you uh, keep your Bibles open at Daniel chapter 8? It is one of the most bizarre chapters in the Bible, but I think the message is really simple. So I've got a very simple thing to remember tonight. Here it is. It's on the screen. Uh, trust God even in the most stressful times. I, I think that is the essence of Daniel chapter 8. Trust God even in the most stressful times of your life. Ever had those situations where you're so shaken and you're so uh, broken? Uh, you're a Christian and you're kind of saying, God, what are you doing here? Where are you, God? Why have you allowed this to happen? How long, oh Lord? Ever had those times? And it could be a trial, it could be a tragedy, it could be a disappointment, it could be a disaster, it could be a sickness, it could be betrayal. And you're tempted to, to doubt God or get angry with God. And you need to grasp hold of this, trust Him, depend on Him, believe on Him, even in the most stressful times of your life. Here at Church by the Bridge, we support Voice of the Martyrs, they're the uh, agency that supports persecuted Christians. And we support 12 women whose husbands are in prison for their faith in Vietnam. And last week we got some letters from some men who had been released from jail. Here's a picture of two of them on the screen. The first man is called Wai Ritni. And he was in prison for 13 years just for believing in Jesus. And he wrote this to us. Church Brother Bridge, I have a big family and no money for my kids. I have high blood pressure and hepatitis B. And due to torture in prison, my whole body aches and I'm in constant pain. But despite the difficult circumstances, I always trust God. I know I'm alive today through the mercy of God and I don't blame God for anything. I will never forget what you, Church by the Bridge, have done for us. You reminded us that God still cares. The police are still watching me, so please pray I keep on trusting God. I thank God and I thank you, my brothers and sisters. That, that's a man who trusts God in the most horrendous circumstances. 
The other man is called Wai Wo Ni. He spent nine years in jail. He wrote this. I have no house. I live with my elderly mother. I work to provide money for my two kids. I'm always being watched by the police wherever I go. Harsh prison conditions, no medication, unhealthy eating has left my body totally weak. But I thank God in all these circumstances. The Lord has still supplied me with everything I need. God is my caregiver and my support. Thank you, Church by the Bridge, for taking the time to pray for me and my family. May God bless you abundantly, and may you keep trusting in your God. Isn't that extraordinary? May we here in the comforts of Kubali keep trusting in our God. See, a man who's gone through the most awful of situations can say that, can't he? Because he's a man who has trusted God. And I believe that we here at Church Bubbies need to hear this tonight. Uh, the Christians in China in the 1950s, they trusted God. You know the story of the, of the evangelization of China? Hudson Taylor went there and taught the gospel after years and years and years of painstaking evangelization. Just gradually, bit by bit, people became believers. And in 1951, the, the government expelled all the Christian missionaries. And I'm sure the missionaries were asking, what are you doing, God? Why, God? How long, God? Let me read what one of them said. Brothers and sisters, we must keep trusting God. God knows what he is doing, even in this. Trust him. Believe in him. And of course God was in control. What was God doing? He was raising up indigenous Chinese believers to lead the church. There was an explosion of believers in China after the missionaries left. Of course he knew what he was doing. And those missionaries went to Southeast Asia to preach the gospel in countries where the gospel was yet to be preached. So trust God, even in the most stressful times. I believe we need to hear that tonight. Because your plans might not work out. We will be faced with disappointment and disasters. We will face trials and tragedies. We will get sick. We will suffer. Relationships will break down and we will feel like God has let us down. And there'll be moments in your Christian life where you say, what are you doing, God? How long, O oh Lord? Trust him. Trust him. So in Daniel chapter 8, it's a bit of a weird bit of the book. The apocalyptic visions and dreams and rams and goats and horns. And Remember what I said last week? The apocalyptic is not doom and gloom. It's written to comfort and reassure the believers that God is still on his throne. Apocalyptic literature is not written just to feed our minds. It's supposed to evoke our emotions. We're supposed to, to feel the terror and to feel the pain and to feel the comfort. And Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 are a bit like parallel chapters. They remind me of Genesis 1 and 2. You know, in Genesis 1, you've got the big picture and it zooms down in Genesis 2. In, in Daniel 7, you get the big picture, what's happening on earth from the perspective of God on his throne in heaven for all time right up to the return of Christ. And here in chapter 8, you zoom down into a particular time in history in a particular place called Susa in modern-day Iran. And, and this vision happens in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. That is two years after chapter 7. And this vision is so disturbing 
and so bizarre that verse 27 tells us that Daniel took to his bed sick for many days. It is a bizarre vision, but it's actually really quite simple. It's all about political power and persecution of God's people. It's a comfort for God's people to know that rulers will come and rulers will go and Christians will suffer, but we must keep trusting God. So let's read it, verse 2. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress of the city of Susa. So he is transported to modern-day Iran. And in his vision in verse 3, he sees a ram standing beside a canal with these two horns. They were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. And so this ram is powerful. Verse 4, he says that no animal could stand against him. He is aggressive. He destroys people. He becomes great. And I love the fact that God doesn't leave us guessing. So verse 20 tells us the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now the Medes and the Persians, that great empire that destroyed Babylon... And we know that the Persian Empire came up after the Median Empire, but the Persian Empire was stronger and more powerful. That's the longer horn. But the thing about kings is that kings come and kings go. And at the height of their power, the Medes and Persians were overthrown by another king, more powerful. He's represented in verse 5 by this male goat with one horn. This male goat appeared from the west across the surface of the entire earth, without touching the ground. It's like a, a goat on a hoverboard. And, and he is agile, and he is ferocious, and he's powerful, and he's strong, and he stampedes the ram. And there's, there's a word there in verse 7. It's, a, it's a, a shocking word. He shattered. He shattered the ram. Like a piece of pottery, it has gone to pieces, destroyed, gone. And verse 21 tells us that that goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn, the first king, that is Alexander the Great. If you know your history, you know that Alexander the Great was a powerful king. He came from nowhere, and within four years, he totally demolished the Persian Empire. He was brilliant. The world stood in awe of this man, but he was a very proud king and a very arrogant man. And at the height of his power, Alexander the Great fell ill, went to bed, and died aged 32. And that's verse 8, isn't it? The male goat became very great. But when he became powerful, the large horn was shattered. That's the word again. Rulers come and rulers go. And then you have these four horns in verse 8. I think that's Macedonia, Thrace, Egypt, and Syria. But the whole of this it's just the prelude. It's just the overture to the main events. The main events is in verses 9 to 12. And it's really funny because human history loves to talk about Alexander the Great. Volumes written about him. You find it really difficult to find much written about this next king in verses 9 to 12. But God is concerned about this king. And we need to be concerned about this king because this king is so anti-God. He utterly destroys God's people. Let me read verses 9 to 12. <coughs> From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensive towards the south and the east and towards the beautiful land that is Jerusalem. 
It grew as high as a heavenly host. He is proud. He is arrogant. He made some of the stars and some of the hosts fall to the earth. He tramples on the angels and, and God's people. He made himself great. I am the greatest. Even up to the prince of the host. He even thinks that he's equal with God. And this is what he does. Verse 11. He removed the daily sacrifices. He takes away the, the morning and the evening sacrifice from the temple. He prevents God's people from worshipping their God. He overthrew the place of his sanctuary. He destroyed the temple. He demolished the place where God dwells and God's people gather. And then look down to verse 12. The horn, the king, will throw truth to the ground. Get rid of God's word and teach lies. That's what we're looking for. The king who will burn down the churches, stop God's people from gathering, and ban the Bible. And it happened. 167 BC, a king in Syria called Antiochus Epiphany IV. And he came to the throne, and he was so atheistic, he was so militant against God, he attacked Jerusalem, he overthrew the temple, he told people they couldn't worship their God, he put a statue to Zeus in God's temple, and even worse than that, he put a pig on the altar in the temple. What is more offensive to Jewish people than a pig on their altar? And he banned the Bible, he banned the Torah. God's people were not allowed to circumcise their kids. That was made illegal. God's people were not allowed to keep the Sabbath. That was illegal. And he murdered, he murdered thousands and thousands of God's people. Why did he do that? Pride? Arrogance? Verse 11, he grew, he made himself great. He thought he was the greatest. Or verse 23, he was insolent. Good word. G.K. Chesterton says if he could preach just one sermon, he would preach against pride. And I think this king could have done with hearing that sermon. He's a very proud man. His biggest mistake, though, in verse 11 and down in verse 25, was that he thought he was bigger than God. Look at verse 25. The second half, he will destroy many in a time of peace. He will kill people. He will even stand against the prince of princes, that is, God himself or the Lord Jesus Christ. Th this king is arrogant enough to take on God and elevate himself above God. But look, look at the next line. He will be, there's that word again, shattered. He'll be got rid of, and he was. Do you, do you believe that about history? Do you believe that from Babylon to Medes and Persians, from Syria to Greece, that, that God's always in control and God raises up kings and God brings them down? Do you believe that God can do that? Do you believe that God's always on his throne and he's always reigning, he's always ruling, he's always watching? Oh, you say, but, but why didn't God bring them down earlier? Why did God allow these harsh rulers to rule for so long? Why did God allow his people to suffer so horribly? Why did he allow to burn down the, the temple and to ban the Bible? Why? And that's why the question in verse 13 is so honest and so real. How long, O oh Lord? How long will these events last? 
How long will we not be allowed to worship in our temple? How long will God's people be destroyed? How long will this blasphemy take place? How long will you allow your name to be mocked? How long, O Lord? I need to say that any sane Christian asks that question, don't they? How long, O God, will you allow all this evil to to keep going in your world? And God's answer in verse 14 is what we need to hear. God basically say, says, for as long as I decide. In this case, verse 14, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. I, I don't think that's a literal figure. I think there's a fixed period of time. God knows when it's going to start, and God knows when it's going to finish. There's a point where, where God's people will once again sing in the temple, and it will be restored. It will end, and God knows when that time will be. But that truth is very powerful for believers, that, that God is in control of all the timing. He knows what you're going through. He knows when it's going to finish. And this was 400 years before the events took place. So trust God, even in the most stressful time. Let me just say three, three quick things. We need to be realistic about persecution today. You see that verses down there, that the the kings will ban the Bible, burn down the churches, prevent people from worshipping their God. And that is a living reality for millions of Christians around the world today. As we sit here tonight, somewhere in the world a church will be burned down. As we sit in the comforts of Kirribilli tonight, somewhere in the world, someone will go, to, will go to prison for their faith. And if you don't believe me, here are stats from last year. A 2016 study said that 600 million Christians were prevented from practicing their faith last year. And 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith last year. That's one death every six minutes. As we speak... Churches are being burned and Bibles are being banned. Many of you know that I've been discipling Mahio, the, this new believer. It's been really exciting. But he's from Iran. He's from a Muslim background. But what you might not know is that through FaceTime, we've been sharing the gospel with his brother, Mason, who lives in Iran, and he too has become a Christian. That is amazing, Yes. Mason would love to go to church, but he cannot. If he was to go to church today, the police would be there watching him. If he was to go to church tonight, he would be arrested. He would put his life at risk. That is the living reality for some Muslim converts in part of the world today. Uh, Mona, his sister, talked about how when she went back to Iran with a Bible in her suitcase. She went through the customs and she started to panic because she thought, if they find my Bible, if they discover my Bible in my luggage, then I will be interrogated. That is the reality. I hope you're aware of that. I hope you're aware of what life is like for many of our brothers and sisters in the world today. And if you're not, can I urge you to sign up for Voice of the Martyrs newsletters or to open doors? And can I urge you to, to pray for these Christians? 
Simple prayer like, Sovereign Lord, God of all comfort, we pray that you would comfort those who are tortured in body and mind tonight. Merciful God, would you relieve them from their suffering and give them a steadfast faith and strengthen them to keep on trusting you. You can pray that prayer, can't you? I think Daniel 8 would be an amazing comfort to these people that, that God knew and God sees and God's in control, so trust him. So be realistic about persecution. Be realistic about rulers today. This chapter is all about kings rising and kings falling. Kings coming and kings going. Let me ask you a question. Well, according to the Bible, what is the, what is the purpose of kings and governments? Why did God establish kings and governments in his world? Does anyone know? To establish justice, Romans 13. To bring peace and order to God's society. To stand up for what is right and to punish what is wrong. That, that was, that's why God established them. Governments are a good thing and kings are a good thing. But if you get the wrong ruler, it can turn very ugly very quickly. The, the ruler who elevates himself and becomes proud and thinks he's no longer under God. The ruler like Antiochus Epiphanes, who said, I am great. I'm going to make myself great because I am ruler of this world. Now, power leads to pride. And pride leads to punishing the wrong people. And I think Daniel 8 is like that pattern that pride can lead to defiance of God. Because you don't need God if you're the most powerful person in the world, do you? You ever wondered why our country is becoming more and more depraved and more and more godless? I think that phrase in verse 12 is true for Australia. The horn will throw truth to the ground. Leaders will rubbish what the Bible says. They'll scoff at God's word. Society will just chuck away truth and replace it with lies. So be realistic. Some world leaders do an incredible job. Some world leaders do an extraordinary job at upholding justice, but others do an awful job. And I know that you think that I'm in love with the Queen. I am in love with the Queen. But, you know, I think she has done an incredible job over 60-odd years. Why? Let me quote her. This is the, the words of Her Majesty. I've sought to live my whole life in the fear of the Lord. I know just how much I rely on my own faith to guide me through the good times and the bad times in life. Each day is a new beginning. And I know the only way to live my life is to put my trust in my God. And like others of you who draw inspiration from your own faith, I draw strength from the message of hope in the Christian gospel. No surprise she's tried to lead so well because she lives under God. And just as we need to pray for the persecuted church, we must pray for world leaders. How often in your personal prayer lives do you pray for the prime minister or pray for the premier or 
pray for the newly elected mayors that we elected yesterday. Let me just read a very simple prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. We, could, we can do no better than this. Almighty and the everlasting God, we are taught by your holy word that the hearts of kings are in your rule and governance, and that thou dost dispose and turn them as it seemeth best to thy godly wisdom. We humbly beseech thee to dispose the, and govern the hearts of Elizabeth your servant and all other rulers, that in all their thoughts, words, and works they may ever seek thy honor and glory and study to preserve thy people committed to their charge in peace and in godliness. Grant this merciful Father for thy dear Son's sake, Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Pray that rulers would lead with integrity and that they would not burn down the churches, they would not ban the Bible, but they would, they, they'd stand up for what is right. There's a little phrase in Daniel 8 I find incredibly reassuring. It's in verse 25. The last phrase, this king will even stand against the prince of priests, princes, put himself up against God, yet he will be shattered, he'll be destroyed, not by human hands. I love that phrase. Now, what it's saying there is that the, the downfall of the most powerful leaders in the world is not due to bad luck. It's not due to an evolution of power. It's because the hand of God is over them and on them. The hand of the almighty God who can bring them down and will bring down the arrogant and the proud. We've got to believe he could. The, the God who can smite an entire Egyptian army is powerful enough with a click of his fingers to bring down the most despotic ruler. That's the point of this chapter. Kings come and kings go, but God is over it all. He sees it, he knows it, he's in control of it. So be realistic about persecution, be realistic about rulers, and then lastly, be realistic about your suffering. Be realistic about your suffering today. See, most of us will not face this overt persecution. We don't cry out, how long, O Lord, before we can come to church? How long, O Lord, can we gather with God's people and we can read the Bible? Because we live in a country, praise God for that, where it's not illegal. But, but we'll still face trials and tragedies and sickness and sufferings and hardships that will have a go at us. That's a really personal question. What would it take to cause you to doubt God and not to trust God in your life? What, what things might happen to you or have happened to you that have caused you to wander and not trust in your God? Loss of a job, loss of health, loss of a loved one, loss of money, betrayal. You cry, where? Where are you, God? What are you doing, God? How long? See, as a pastor, it, it is my responsibility to prepare you to suffer. Because we'll all suffer. James chapter 1 does not say, consider it pure joy if you face trials of many kinds. It says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because the assumption being that anybody who is breathing and living will face suffering and trials at some point in their life. Just because you're a Christian does not exempt you from all the trials of this world. Suffering will happen. We live in a fallen world with fallen people, with fallen leaders, where the truth has been thrown down 
and we live in a world where people will hurt us and disappoint us and betray us, and we live in a fallen world when we, by our sin, we stuff up and make stupid choices, and we bear the consequences sometimes. So we'll all suffer, but God's always in control of it, and God's always on his throne, and God is not taken by surprise. Remember, Daniel chapter 8 was written 400 years ahead of time. God gave Daniel this vision so that when it did happen to God's people 400 years later, they were not shaken by it. Now, wouldn't you like to know, wouldn't you like to have the next month, next year, the next 10 years revealed to you so that when it does happen to you, you're not shaken by it? God doesn't promise that. But he does promise you that every day ordained for you has been written in his book before one of them came to be, Psalm 139. He does promise you that there's nothing that takes him by surprise. And he does say that suffering will end. How long, O oh Lord, we say? And the answer is, well, for a fixed time. And the Ecclesiastes, a season for this, a season for that. If, you, if you're here tonight and you really have gone to the pits of suffering, and I know some of you have, and you've been utterly, utterly broken. And I, I sort of look at you, some of you now, and you think, yeah, that was then, but praise God, that was then, but it's now finished. And, and many of you talk about how when you're in the pits of despair, it's like you're in this cloud, this darkness, or the fog, and then you suddenly wake up one day and the fog has cleared, the cloud has gone. And none of us can predict when exactly that's going to happen. I wish we could. But God does promise us that the cloud will lift one day. And even if that day happens to be the day that we meet him face to face. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we always understand the point of every little bit of suffering in our life. I'm not saying that. I, I could quote Romans 8. You know, we know in all things God works for the good of those who love. Now, I believe that. I believe that in every situation, God is at work for good, and the good is to make us more like Jesus. I, I believe that. But let's be honest and real. You know, God could teach me patience or self-control in other ways apart from going through the pits, couldn't he? I, I don't know why he takes me through the pits sometimes to teach me that lesson. But I do know this, in the midst of the pits... In the midst of my suffering, God calls me, now God commands me to trust him. It's a small word, trust, isn't it? T-R-U-S-T, -T, a profound word. What does trust mean? It's more than belief. Belief is just an intellectual thing. It's actually that daily dependence. It's that daily reaching out to him saying, I, I do believe in you and I know that you're good and I know that you're sovereign and I know that you're powerful and I don't like what I'm going through right now, but I'm going to stand on that truth. I'm going to wake up today and say, yes, Lord, I am yours and you are good. That's what the word trust means. I love this story from the book Holy Sweat by Tim Hansel. One day while my son Zach and I were out in the country, climbing around in some cliffs. I heard a voice from above me yell, Hey, Dad, catch me. 
I turned around to see Zach joyfully jumping off a rock straight at me. He jumped first and then yelled, hey, Dad. And I became an instant circus act, catching him. We both fell to the ground, and for a moment after I caught him, I could hardly speak. When I found my voice again, I gasped in his exasperation. Zach, can you give me one good reason why you just did that? He responded with remarkable calmness. Sure. Because you're my dad. You're my dad, and I trust you. His whole assurance was based on the fact that his father was trustworthy. Isn't that even more true for a Christian? And it is. If you're here tonight and you say that Jesus Christ is your Lord, you believe he died for you, you believe he rose again, you believe he's on his throne in heaven, you can say, hey, Dad, hey, Heavenly Father, you are trustworthy, so I'm, I'm going to trust you today. I might not like what I'm going through. I might not explain what I'm going through, but I know that you are my dad, and I will trust you. You are good. You are sovereign. You are on your throne. You are all-powerful. Wow, you're my dad, and I trust you. And there will be some people here tonight who just need to hear that simple message. Trust God, even in the most stressful times of your life. I'm going to finish by reading a poem, and I'll invite the musicians to come forward. So why don't you make this poem your prayer? Maybe close your eyes and echo the words after me. Trust him when dark doubts assail thee. Trust him when thy strength is small. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. Trust him. He is ever faithful. Trust him. His will is best. Trust him. For the heart of Jesus is the only place to rest. Please stand.